Chapter Eleven of Further Foolishness by Stephen Leacock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: Germany from Within Out. The adventure which I here narrate resulted out of a strange psychological experience of a kind that, outside of Germany, would pass the bounds of comprehension. To begin with, I had fallen asleep. Of the reason for my falling asleep, I have no doubt. I had remained awake nearly the whole of the preceding night, absorbed in the perusal of a number of recent magazine articles and books dealing with Germany as seen from within. I had read from cover to cover that charming book, just written by Lady de Washaway, under the title Ten Years as a Toady, or the Perhapsburgs as I Didn't Know Them. Her account of the life of the imperial family of Austria, simple, unaffected, home-like. Her picture of the good old emperor, dining quietly off a cold potato, and sitting after dinner playing softly to himself on the flute, while his attendants gently withdrew one by one from his presence. Her description of merry, boisterous, large-hearted Prince Stefan Karl, who kept the whole court in a perpetual roar all the time, by asking such riddles as, When is a sailor not a sailor? The answer being, of course, when he is a German prince. In fact, the whole book had thrilled me to the verge of spiritual exhaustion. From Lady de Washaway's work, I turned to peruse Hugo von Halbwitz's admirable book, Easy Marks, or How the German Government Borrows Its Funds. And after that, I had read Karl von Wiggleround's Dispatches, and Barnstuff's confidential letters to criminals. As a consequence, I fell asleep as if poisoned. But the amazing thing is that, whenever it was or was not that I fell asleep, I woke up to find myself in Germany. I cannot offer any explanation as to how this came about. I merely state the fact. There I was, seated on the grassy bank of a country road. I knew it was Germany at once, there was no mistaking it. The whole landscape had an orderliness, a method about it, that is, alas, never seen in British countries. The trees stood in neat lines, with the name of each nailed to it on a board. The birds sat in regular rows, four to a branch, and sang in harmony, very simply, but with the true German feeling. There were two peasants working beside the road, one was picking up fallen leaves, putting them into neat packets of fifty. The other was cutting off the tops of the late thistles that still stood unwithered in the chill winter air, and arranging them according to size and color. In Germany nothing is lost, nothing is wasted. It is perhaps not generally known that from the top of the thistle the Germans obtain picrate of ammonia, the most deadly explosive known to modern chemistry, while from the bulb below, butter, crude rubber, and sweet cider are extracted in large quantities. The two peasants paused in their work a moment as they saw me glance towards them, and each, with the simple gentility of the German working man, quietly stood on his head until I had finished looking at him. I felt quite certain, of course, that it must only be a matter of a short time before I would inevitably be arrested. I felt doubly certain of it when I saw a motor speeding towards me with a stout man in military uniform and a Prussian helmet seated behind the chauffeur. 
The motor stopped, but to my surprise the military man, whom I perceived to be wearing the uniform of a general, jumped out and advanced towards me with a genial cry of, Well, Herr Professor! I looked at him again. Why, Fritz! I cried. You recognize me? he said. Certainly, I answered. You used to be one of the six German waiters at McCluskey's restaurant in Toronto. The general laughed. You really took us for waiters, he said. Well, well, my dear professor, how odd. We were all generals in the German army. My own name is not Fritz Schmidt, as you knew it, but Count von Bubenstein. The boobs of Bubenstein, he added proudly, are connected with the Hohenzollerns. When I am commanded to dine with the emperor, I have the hereditary right to eat anything that he leaves. But I don't understand, I said. Why were you in Toronto? Perfectly simple, special military service. We were there to make a report. Each day we kept a record of the velocity and direction of the wind, the humidity of the air, the distance across King Street, and the height of the CPR building. All this we wired to Germany every day. For what purpose? I asked. Pardon me, said the general, and then, turning the subject with exquisite tact, Do you remember Max? he said. Do you mean the tall, melancholy-looking waiter who used to eat the spare oysters and drink up what was left in the glasses behind the screen? Ha! exclaimed my friend. But why did he drink them? Why? Do you know that that man, his real name is not Max, but Ernst Needlefine, is one of the greatest chemists in Germany? Do you realize that he was making a report to our war office on the percentage of alcohol obtainable in Toronto after closing time? And Carl? I asked. Carl was a topographist in the service of his high serenity, the King Regnant of Bavaria. Here my friend saluted himself with both hands and blinked his eyes four times. He made maps of all the breweries of Canada. We know now to a bottle how many German soldiers could be used in invading Canada without danger of death from drought. How many was it? I asked. Bubenstein shook his head. Very disappointing, he said. In fact, your country is not yet ripe for German occupation. Our experts say that the invasion of Canada is an impossibility unless we use Milwaukee as a base. But step into my motor, said the Count, interrupting himself, and come along with me. Stop, you are cold. This morning air is very keen. Take this, he added, picking up the fur cap from the chauffeur's head. It will be better than that hat you are wearing. Or here, wait a moment. As he spoke, the Count unwound a woolen muffler from the chauffeur's neck and placed it round mine. Now then, he added, the sheepskin coat. My dear Count, I protested. Not a bit, not a bit, he cried as he pulled off the chauffeur's coat and shoved me into it. His face beamed with true German generosity. Now, he said as we settled back into the motor and started along the road, I am entirely at your service. Try one of these cigars. Got it all right? Right. 
you notice no doubt the exquisite flavor it is a tannhauser our chemists are making these cigars now out of the refuse of the tanneries and glue factories i sighed involuntarily imagine trying to blockade a people who could make cigars out of refuse imagine trying to get near them at all strong aren't they said von bubenstein blowing a big puff of smoke in fact it is these cigars that have given rise to the legend a pure fiction i need hardly say that our armies are using asphyxiating gas the truth is they are merely smoking german-made tobacco in their trenches but come now he continued your meeting me is most fortunate let me explain. I am at present on the intelligence branch of the general staff. My particular employment is dealing with foreign visitors. The branch of our service called, for short, the Eingewadernde Fremden Verwallungsbureau. How would you call that? It sounds, I said, like the Bureau for Stuffing Up Incidental Foreigners. Precisely, said the Count though your language lacks the music of ours. It is my business to escort visitors round Germany and help them with their dispatches. I took the Ford party through, in a closed cattle car with the lights out. They were greatly impressed. They said that, though they saw nothing, they got an excellent idea of the atmosphere of Germany. It was I who introduced Lady de Washaway to the court of Franz Joseph. I write the dispatches from Karl von Wiggleround and send the necessary material to Ambassador von Barnstoff. In fact, I can take you everywhere, show you everything, and, here my companion's military manner suddenly seemed to change into something obsequiously and strangely familiar, it won't cost you a cent, not a cent, unless you care. I understood. I handed him ten cents. Thank you, sir he said, then with an abrupt change back to his military manner, Now then, what would you like to see? The army? The breweries? The royal court? Berlin? What shall it be? My time is limited, but I shall be delighted to put myself at your service for the rest of the day. I think, I said, I should like more than anything to see Berlin, if it is possible. Possible? answered my companion nothing easier the motor flew ahead and in a few moments later we were making our arrangements with a local station master for a special train to berlin i got here my first glimpse of the wonderful perfection of the german railway system i am afraid said the station master with deep apologies that i must ask you to wait half an hour i am moving a quarter of a million troops from the east to the west front and this always holds up the traffic for fifteen or twenty minutes. I stood on the platform watching the troops' trains go by and admiring the marvelous ingenuity of the German system. As each train went past at full speed, a postal train, Feld Post Eisenbahn Zug, moved on the other track in the opposite direction, from which a shower of letters were thrown into the soldiers through the window. Immediately after the postal train, a soup train, soup zug, was drawn along, from the windows of which soup was squirted out of a hose. Following this, there came at full speed a beer train, beer zug, from which beer bombs were exploded in all directions. 
I watched until all had passed. Now, said the station master, your train is ready. Here you are. Away we sped through the meadows and fields, hills and valleys, forests and plains. And nowhere, I am forced like all other travelers to admit it, did we see any signs of the existence of war. Everything was quiet, orderly, usual. We saw peasants digging, in an orderly way, for acorns in the frozen ground. We saw little groups of soldiers drilling in the open squares of villages, in their quiet German fashion, each man chained by the leg to the man next to him. Here and there great zeppelins sailed overhead, dropping bombs, for practice, on the less important towns. At times in the village squares we saw clusters of haggard women, quite quiet and orderly, waving little red flags and calling, Bread! Bread! But nowhere any signs of war, certainly not. We reached Berlin just at nightfall. I had expected to find it changed. To my surprise, it appeared just as usual. The streets were brilliantly lighted. Music burst in waves from the restaurants. From the theater signs I saw to my surprise that they were playing Hamlet, East Lynn, and Potash and Perlmutter. Everywhere was brightness, gaiety, and lightheartedness. Here and there a merry-looking fellow, with a brush and a pail of paste and a roll of papers over his arm, would swab up a casualty list of two or three thousand names amid roars of good-natured laughter. What perplexed me most was the sight of thousands of men, not in uniform, but in ordinary civilian dress. Bubenstein, I said, as we walked down the Linden Avenue, I don't understand it. The men? he answered. It's a perfectly simple matter. I see you don't understand our army statistics. At the beginning of the war we had an army of three million. Very good. Of these, one million were in the reserve. We called them to the colors, that made four million. Then of these, all who wished were allowed to volunteer for special services. Half a million did so. That made four and a half million. In the first year of the war we suffered two million casualties but of these, seventy-five percent, or one and a half million, returned later on to the colors, bringing our grand total up to six million. This six million we use on each of six fronts, giving us a grand total of thirty-six million. I see, I said. In fact, I have seen these figures before. In other words, your men are inexhaustible. Precisely, said the Count. And mark you, behind these we still have the landsturm, made up of men between fifty-five and sixty, and the landslide, reputed to be the most terrible of all the German levies, made up by withdrawing the men from the breweries. This is the last final act of national fury. But come, he said, you must be hungry, is it not so? I am, I admitted, but I had hesitated to acknowledge it. I feared that the food supply... Bubenstein broke into hearty laughter. Food supply? he roared. My dear fellow, you must have been reading the English newspapers. Food supply. My dear professor, have you not heard? We have got over that difficulty entirely and forever. But come, here is a restaurant. In with you, and eat to your heart's content. 
we entered the restaurant. It was filled to overflowing with a laughing crowd of diners and merrymakers. Thick clouds of blue cigar smoke filled the air. Waiters ran to and fro with tall steins of foaming beer, and great bundles of bread tickets, soup tickets, meat cards, and butter coupons. These were handed around to the guests, who sat quietly chewing the corners of them as they sipped their beer. "'Now then,' said my host, looking over the printed menu in front of him, "'what shall it be? What do you say to a ham certificate with a cabbage ticket on the side? Or how would you like a lobster coupon with a receipt for asparagus?' "'Yes,' I answered, "'or perhaps, as our journey has made me hungry, "'one of these beef certificates with an affidavit for Yorkshire pudding.' "'Done,' said Bubenstein. "'A few minutes later we were comfortably drinking our tall glasses of beer "'and smoking Tannhauser cigars "'with an appetizing pile of colored tickets and certificates in front of us.' "'Admit,' said von Bubenstein good-naturedly, that we have overcome the food difficulty forever. You have, I said. It was a pure matter of science and efficiency, he went on. It has long been observed that if one sat down in a restaurant and drank beer and smoked cigars, especially such a brand as these Tannhausers, during the time it took for the food to be brought by a German waiter, all appetite was gone. It remained for the German scientists to organize this into a system. Have you finished, or would you like to take another look at your beef certificate? We rose. Von Bubenstein paid the bill by writing I.O.U. on the back of one of the cards, not forgetting the waiter, for whom he wrote on a piece of paper, God bless you, and we laughed. Count, I said, as we took our seat on a bench in the Cijalet, or Alley of Victory, and listened to the music of the military band, and watched the crowd, I begin to see that Germany is unconquerable. Absolutely so, he answered. In the first place, your men are inexhaustible. If we kill one class, you call out another, and anyway, one half of those we kill get well again, and the net result is that you have more than ever. Precisely, said the Count. As to food, I continued, you are absolutely invulnerable. What with acorns, thistles, tanbark, glue, tickets, coupons, and certificates, you can go on forever. We can, he said. Then for money you use IOUs. Anybody with a lead pencil can command all the funds he wants. Moreover, your soldiers at the front are getting dug in deeper and deeper. Last spring they were fifty feet underground. By 1918 they will be nearly two hundred feet down. Short of mining for them, we shall never get them out. Never, said von Bubenstein with great firmness. But there is one thing that I don't quite understand. Your navy, your ships. There, surely, we have you. Sooner or later that whole proud fleet in the Kiel Canal will come out under fire of our guns and be sunk to the bottom of the sea. There at least we conquer. Von Bubenstein broke into loud laughter. The fleet, he roared, and his voice was almost hysterical and overstrung, as if high living on lobster coupons and oversmoking of Tannhausers was undermining his nerves. 
the fleet is it possible you do not know why all germany knows it capture our fleet ha ha it now lies fifty miles inland we have filled in the canal pushed in the banks the canal is solid land again and the fleet is high and dry the ships are boarded over and painted to look like german inns and breweries prince adelbert is disguised as a brewer admiral von tirpitz is made up as a head-waiter prince heinrich is a bartender the sailors are dressed up as chambermaids and some day when jellicoe and his men are coaxed ashore they will drop in to drink a glass of beer and then poof they will explode them all with a single torpedo such is the naval strategy of our scientists are we not a nation of sailors von boobenstein's manner had grown still wilder and more hysterical there was a queer glitter in his eyes i thought it better to soothe him i see i said the allies are beaten one might as well spin a coin for heads or tails to see whether we abandon england now or wait till you come and take it as i spoke i took from my pocket an english sovereign that i carry as a lucky piece and prepared to spin it in the air von boobenstein as he saw it broke into a sort of hoarse shriek gold gold he cried give it to me what i exclaimed a piece of gold he panted give it to me give it to me quick i know a place where we can buy bread with it real bread not tickets food give me the gold gold for bread we can get bread i am starving gold bread and as he spoke his hoarse voice seemed to grow louder and louder in my ears the sounds of the street were hushed a sudden darkness fell and a wind swept among the trees of the alley of victory moaning and a thousand a myriad voices seemed to my ear to take up the cry gold bread we are starving then i woke up end of chapter 11